Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Second Timothy chapter 1, reading the first 14 verses of Scripture. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, <clears throat> as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I am appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather together to hear your sacred words, for only you have the words of eternal life. So I ask you this morning that you would come into this place in a mighty way, reveal your will, your person to us. Grant us one more moment of glory and grace in this service. Turn our hearts and our minds towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy, his son in the gospel. This letter is written from Rome, so Paul is in prison in Rome. This is about the year 65 A.D., and it is written shortly before Paul is killed for the sake of the gospel. Paul's death is not recorded in Scripture, but reliable history tells us that he was martyred in Rome, very likely beheaded for the sake of the gospel. Paul knows his time is short. He knows he's going to die. Like all of us, if we knew that death was very imminent upon us, the words that we had to write to the people that we love would be precious. They would be direct. They would be weighty. They would have gravity. 
Paul is not playing games in his letter to Timothy. He is blood earnest. He is serious. He is sentimental, as you would expect from a man who knows he's going to die. His words were for Timothy, and those words were also for the church that was at Ephesus, where Timothy is the overseer, the the bishop, the pastor of these house churches in town. But those words are also for us, for we regard them and elevate these words as anointed Holy Scripture. So Paul writes in verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors, With a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. This little phrase, night and day, simply means that he never stopped praying for Timothy. There were people praying, no doubt, for Paul every day. Paul's in prison. They know Paul might die. There is no doubt people, because Paul is now a fairly well-known figure by the end of his ministry, people are praying for Paul every day, just as we would pray for someone who is in prison for the gospel's sake today. But Paul wasn't feeling sorry for himself. Paul's praying for other people. Other people praying for Paul in prison, but Paul is praying for other people. In the midst of our own trials and sufferings, which don't compare to what Paul is dealing with. Do we focus inwardly? Do we have a pity party? Woe is me. Or do we simply pray for other people in our own time of suffering? This is Paul's ministry at this point. Paul can no longer go around and take up collections for the poor. Paul can no longer get on a ship and travel. He is confined, but there's still two things he can do. He can pray and he can write, and that's it. That's his ministry, and that's what he does. He can't preach. He can't wax long until midnight, until a boy falls from an upper story window, falls asleep during Paul's sermons, like what happened in the book of Acts. Paul's preaching to a room, and somebody falls asleep and Paul's sermons, why I don't feel so bad, because it it happened to the great Apostle Paul. I know of a pastor, a church, he went to a guy who always slept during service, and he said, you know, he said, you sleep through all my sermons. This really happened. And the guy said, don't worry about it. He said, I trust you. He said, "I, I trust you. And... The boy falls from the second story. Paul goes down and prays for him, and God brings him back. But Paul can't do that now. There is no preaching sermons. He can't make hospital calls, but what he, what he can do, he can pray, and he can reach out through a letter. The art of writing letters is nearly dead. Very few people write letters anymore. I don't know when the last time was that I wrote a letter. I like the idea. My handwriting is so illegible that it would simply be a token because somebody would get it and they would have to decipher what was being said. I received a handwritten note years ago, a thank you note from a minister that we brought in to speak for a training session, and he sent a handwritten note, and it struck me. I still have it. It was just because nobody does that anymore. Nobody sends 
handwritten letters and notes. So you may never write another letter, but you can send a text to somebody. You can send an email. You can pick up the phone and call. You can encourage. You can pray. You can edify. You can mirror Paul's ministry in prison. You can do that today. I think of all that Dr. Martin Luther King did One of the things that he's most known for is his letters from a Birmingham jail, in which is, I think, I did not look this up, it's going from memory, I think it was his attorney that would bring him scratches of paper uh, to write on, and he writes these letters from a jail. We can do that. We can encourage. We can reach out. There's a model that Paul's setting here. It's amazing. Somebody you haven't heard from for a long time and you just get a text message and say, hey brother, just praying for you, thought about you today. That means the world to people. And if you're in tune with God and walking with God, God will lay people on your heart to do that. It's like sometimes we don't know if that's from God. Well, I don't think the devil's telling you to go pray for people. So like if you have the inclination to pray for somebody, do it. Encourage somebody, talk to somebody. Our own spiritual and mental state of mind would be healthier if we focused on the needs of other people. So Paul continues to write in verse 5, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now Timothy's father is Greek, but his mother is Jewish, and Timothy received his faith from her. And she received her faith, apparently, from her mother. Now, it is possible, we don't know this, but it's likely because, and this is where I kind of want us to see this, is that Timothy's mother and then Timothy's grandmother, by the time you go back to his grandmother, these are not Christians. They can't be. We're in the year 65. Uh, the, The church has been around about 30 years at this point. He's going back to the Jewish faith. He's appealing to the Jewish faith as people who believed in God, because they did. They were the covenant people of God. So Paul is painting this picture saying, your mother was devoted to God, your grandmother was devoted to God, and now I trust that you also have received this faith. But it's possible that that lineage of faith goes back many, many generations. Some of us have heritage and some people don't. My own particular family in a sewing factory in a little town, a lady in the factory invites another lady to a tent revival a hundred years ago. And that invitation to a tent revival spawns somebody coming to Christ and now going from generation to generation until it's down to me and my kids because somebody invited somebody else to church in a sewing factory. I watched as a kid as my cousin Jeannie and her husband and family drove away in their car. I can still picture the car and them in the car probably nearly 40 years ago as they drove away to go to the mission field in Japan. That family still lives there 40 years later in the Tokyo area. They spent their lives in a foreign land. I I wonder how many people are hearing the call of God to go. To go with abandonment, to go without reservation, simply 
God says, go. I hear a lot of talk, I run in these circles, a lot of talk about people talking about church planting in the North Dallas area. I've heard very little talk about church planting in the South Dallas area. It's the less desirable place to go. It's not where most people want to go plant a church, but who is God calling to go to South Dallas and plant a church? I have to ask myself, would I really go there if God called me to an area of this area or an area of the country or world that I said, you know what, I don't want to live there, Lord. It's like, He doesn't care. It's not about me and my wishes and my desires. What about my children? I visited in Minneapolis this past February. I visited uh, a man in his home in Minneapolis. I Ubered from my hotel to, I was staying in St. Paul. I Ubered over to Minneapolis to this man's home. And you know the Minneapolis riots, the situations there. This is right, his house is right in the heart of all of this. And it was snow on the ground. I mean, I was wading through snow, just so much snow that time of year. And great old house. The whole street was filled with hundred-year-old big two-story houses, lots of character. And he showed me out there on his porch. He said, there's been blood on these sidewalks from people who were stabbed, shot out here. He said, the riots, he said, um, you know, all of that happened just up the street here. Uh, he said, this is a very dangerous neighborhood. I think it's Elliott Park is just down the street. I passed it. It's a notorious area of Minneapolis. It's a bad area. We stood outside and he pointed to the corner. He said, that house there on the corner is where John Piper lives. That's John's house. Um, he said, you know, John Piper sold a million books, never took a dime off of any of them. Um, he said, John moved here in the 80s and John had started inviting people in the church to move in this neighborhood with him to change our city. So they've had people shot on the corners, they've had uh, bikes stolen out of the front yard. It's not a, not a great place to live. It's not where you and I, if we were removed there, it's not the first place that we would look and see. But he said, there's people from the church all around here that come and they live here. Very modest, very modest way to live for people who could have had the means to live in a very different way. But that's how they did it. What about my, my children? And, and John was asked this question and his answer was, the safest place in the world is in the middle of the will of God. There is no place safer to live. What about my cousins? I mean, Tokyo is not where I would want to raise my children. It's one of the largest, if not the largest, it's the very top largest cities in the world. I mean, we think we live in a big area, but that's, that's big at a whole different scale. If you look at a map at it, it's just unreal. Millions upon millions upon millions of people packed in a very dense area. But Rick and Jeannie did. Their kids, one son pastors in Ohio today and the other son pastors here in Dallas because a lady a hundred years ago invited somebody to a tent revival in a sewing factory. That's my story and I tell it on purpose because it might not be your story. 
You might be the first generation to believe the gospel in your family. And if you are, you have a unique opportunity to start something in your bloodline that will change people's lives a hundred years from now. You don't know the impact that the gospel is making today that will make upon people who live a hundred years from now who you'll never know. That unnamed lady. I told this story at the church in Illinois and a lady in the church came up to me afterwards. She said, my grandmother worked in that sewing factory. She said, I just wonder if it could be her. And I said, well, we'll find out someday, won't we? We'll know someday. You have the opportunity to change. Verses 6 through 8 is the crux, the heart of, of what Paul is, is telling Timothy here. For this reason, he says, I remind you to fan into flame. Now, I want you to see that little phrase, fan into flame, because I'm going to circle back to that. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's the center of this text that we read this morning. So that little phrase, fan into flame, in, in our ESV Bibles, it's four words to fan into flame that come from one word in the Greek. So Paul is writing one word that we have to translate into four words. But that word simply means to rekindle the fire. Now I had, in Illinois, I had this, I had a burn pile in my backyard. I had a massive backyard. I would, could hit a nine iron from one end to the other and practice. Um, I started really playing golf when I lived there and didn't know how far, far far golf balls went so I teed the ball up and teed the ball off not knowing that it would go over numerous houses behind there into who knows where and hit what knows what and I realized oh golf balls when you tee them up go further than 90 yards which was roughly the distance uh, to my neighbor's yard so uh, it was a large yard in the very center I put a burn pile and because I had 17 trees, I think after I cut down some trees, we had 17 trees on the property. And all across the front along the highway, we had bushes that were five to six feet tall. And we were constantly trimming something. I was always out there um, with, a, with a saw, just a long pole saw or a bow saw, constantly trimming trees. And I needed a place to burn them, so I had this burn pile in the backyard and I found out that I love to build fires like it's a lot of fun to build fires and I wasn't good at it when I started but I learned how to build a great fire and you know I, you start with the small twigs and you put them into a teepee and old newspapers and used motor oil are your best friend when you're starting a fire um, and the, the fire the fire could be dying out and I'd, have, I'd always have the stuff to the side and I would just feed the fire. I'd go out there every so often and feed the fire. And it could be dying out, the, the light could be growing dimmer, the, the heat is growing cooler, and all I'd have to do is go outside and cut more limbs. And the right mixture of small twigs for quick ignition and large logs for 
long-term fuel would keep that fire going for hours. What, what was I doing? I was doing exactly what Paul told Timothy to do. Rekindle what has been given to you. Paul uses that word fire. It's rekindle the fire. Paul is reminding Timothy of a truth for all of us, that you must constantly feed the fire of the gift of God or it will grow cold. The light will dim and what was once hot will become lukewarm. It will become tepid. It will die. He wants us hot. He wants us on fire, burning with the fervor for the gospel's sake. Because everything in this world, I don't care what it is, every single thing in this world that is not of faith will do its best to throw water on you. Everything. Your job, your responsibilities, your car trouble, your money trouble, your bills, some relationships, your ambition, pride, health issues, hobbies, your age, your youth, your education, your ignorance, life in general is going to do everything it can to throw water upon what you're doing for God. Everything. If you somehow have guilt over that, that like, well, I, I feel like this particular thing in my life pulling me away from God, you are in good company because every believer deals with that. Jesus talks about the cares of life and the dangers of the cares of life, things that we have to do, things in life that if we did not do them, we would be negating and shrugging our responsibility and our God-given duty. Paul said if a man doesn't work, that man doesn't deserve to eat. The whole conversation about the coming of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians, the conversation about the coming of the Lord starts because there were people who were quitting their jobs because Jesus is coming back. I don't need to work. And Paul says, get back to work. It's very pastoral. Like Paul's not writing this for some theological debate. Paul's writing this because people need to eat. It's very practical. It's very pastoral. And people miss that in the first part of the writing of the coming of the Lord. Paul's saying, get back to work. Go live your life. And then the things that we do like that, it just can just drain us of our spiritual motivation. And they're unavoidable. If you've ever hit something in the road that was unavoidable, there wasn't time to react, that's what I mean. It's like, I didn't have time, it's just unavoidable that you're going to run into these things. And that's life. And most days that we live are like driving over speed bumps all day long. Have you ever driven over a speed bump that makes you mad? And there's some speed bumps that you go over and you get, and there's other speed bumps that no matter how slow you go, there's like, that's, that tears up cars. Like there's no reason for the speed bump to be that way. That's our day. That's most days. We just feel like we're just hitting speed bumps over and over and over. I get to the end of the day, if I can just park this body in bed overnight and get off the freeway for a few hours and rest, because in the morning I'm going to get right back on that on-ramp and I'm going to hit this again. And tonight I'm going to get off that on, and I'm going to do that every day until I die. It's like, I, I, when I was much, much younger, I had a man told me, he said, there's some days I get up in the morning and I shave, and I just think, man, I just did this. I just did this. And... It's one of the most spiritual men I ever knew. He was just dealing with the reality of, of age and the reality of life. And I didn't know what he meant then, but there are some days you get up, you're like, oh, not this again. Like, it's like, 
Groundhog Day is, is reality, like we really do live pretty much the same existence every day. That's the reality of life. It, it can suck the morrow out of our faith. So what do you do? You do exactly what Paul told Timothy to do. You fan the flame, you stir it up, you rekindle the fire. I don't care what you have to do, you rekindle the fire. I was building a fire one day and usually I had newspapers and I didn't have any newspapers and I had a next door neighbor named Marvin and Marvin, Marvin was this ex-military guy that never left the military in his mind. Um, he was kind of paramilitary. He had a lot of stories, of just stories. And he told me he actually took a class. He took classes on fire. Like, I don't know what those classes entailed, but he took classes on fire. So Marvin knew how to build a fire. And I came out one day, I didn't have any newspapers, and I took old magazines. And I was ripping pages out of magazines, and he came out as the fire expert, and he goes, well, that's the first time I've ever seen magazines. He was a little, a little disappointed. And I said, well, I said, what, what do you do? I'll, I'll do whatever works. I've got to build this fire. You do whatever it takes to stir up the flame, to rekindle the fire. Pull out all the stops. There is no cost too great. How do we do it? We, we read our Bibles. We pray. We witness. We meditate on the goodness of God. We read good books that are Bible-saturated books. We do whatever it takes to reorient and reset our minds upon Christ. Do not be slothful in zeal, Paul tells the Romans. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That first part, be fervent in spirit, that word fervent means to be hot literally means to boil over, to be on fire. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is written to seven churches in Asia Minor. And one of those churches is in Laodicea, which is today in modern day Turkey. And the words that Christ is saying to the churches, to this particular church, because he starts out, chapters 2 and 3, John starts by writing what Christ is saying to these seven churches. And Christ is saying different things to these seven churches. One of the things that He says to the church, I want you to hear what He says to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the angel is messenger, it's probably the pastor that the letter is being written to. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. This is... This is Jesus speaking. So what would Jesus say to a church today? This is what He said to that church. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and you are neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, and this is why it's so relevant to us today, it's such a mirrored picture of the American church. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and put salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
Those who I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Repentance is one of the core ways that you rekindle the fire. And repentance is not reserved for the rank sinner that walks in off the street, gives his life to Jesus. He repents, he comes to faith, and now he's good. No, repentance is for every single one of us every day. We must live a lifestyle of repentance, praying constantly the prayer of David. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Go out there sometimes at night, just as the sun went down, I'd look and that fire that started been going for a while and now there's no tall yellow flames. It's not a raging fire. But you could peer into the cavernous ruins of the wood and the logs and you could see that blue flame flickering at the base. It was hot. This thing's not dying for a while now. It's, it's just feeding itself. It's hot. The logs, you know, the campfire, the logs, after a while they just start glowing red and you know you have a good fire going. That never happens by accident. There's no such thing as an accidental fire. There are fires that start by accident, but the fire itself did not start on its own. There's always a catalyst, always a catalyst for a fire. Even what we call spontaneous combustion, that simply means there's no external influence upon it. Something combusts, there's still something going on internally that's, that's building up heat until finally it catches fire. But fire doesn't just happen. There's always a catalyst for it. And that's what the, the message that Paul is teaching Timothy. Stir that up. Be intentional about it. God gave you the gift. You couldn't conjure it up. You can't force it. You can't make this happen, but you can rekindle the flame over and over and over until the end of your race. That's what this race is. Rekindling that flame over and over. Getting lukewarm, feeling a little cool and saying, you know what, I I need a course correction. I got to get back on track. So verse 7 and 8, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The gifts that God gives come through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the avenue by which God gives gifts to His people and to His church. Now God does not just reveal Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the nature of God outside of His revelation to us, the nature of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this in John chapter 1. We see this in Acts chapter 1. You read the first few verses of Acts and you start seeing that this is, this is the existence of God. And, and there is one God. There is one divine essence. That word essence is very important. This is not my description. This is the description that the church has used, is that there is one divine essence, and God is simple. Now we say people are simple. We mean something different by that. Well, they're kind of simple. Uh, It's not a compliment. When we say God is simple, we don't mean it in that sense. We mean mean it in the sense that God is not made up of parts. God is not segmented out in parts. There's one part. 
He's simple in that sense. God is not part Father and part Son and part Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. When we refer to the Holy Spirit, we are referring to the full deity of God. When we refer to Jesus, we don't think Jesus is one-third of God. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead, all of God, that is manifest in His body. These are the words of Paul. Jesus is the Son of God and He is God. And yet there's only one God. This is why we can believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God and not dilute His deity. Likewise, the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is not a thing or an it. I think sometimes we, we miss this. and The Holy Spirit, you know, it's a thing or it's an object or it's an it. No, it's a He and Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a, as a He. The Holy Spirit is a subsistence of the one true God, Yahweh. It's not part, it is a subsistence. The Holy Spirit exists as the one true God. The Holy Spirit proceeds from Christ, and He, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us. Acts 2.33 And it is through this indwelling that the Holy Spirit, who is God, imparts to us gifts of His Spirit. So God comes through the power of His Holy Spirit, dwells inside of us. This is Paul's language. What? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? That He dwells within us? So, and with that comes gifts. So the gift that Paul is talking about is related to a spirit of power and love and self-control. And the result of these gifts... So this is why I want you to see the, the logical order of what's going on here. The result of these gifts is the ability to not be ashamed about Jesus and the power to suffer for the gospel. Ultimately, this particular gift, and Paul writes to the Corinthian church, there are other gifts. There is the gift of faith and the gift of the word of wisdom and the gifts of healing and the gift of tongues and the gift of, of miracles and healings and interpretation of tongues. All of these things exist. But in this case, this particular gift, Paul is tying to the ability to not be ashamed of the gospel. And if we were to ask the question, what is the decisive cause for my boldness in the faith and my willingness to suffer for Jesus? The answer is not anything to do with me. It's not, well, he has a more of a type A personality, so he's a better witness for Jesus. Paul strips all of those arguments away when he says it's actually a gift from God. It's the gift that was given by God with the fervency, with the fire, with the heat of the gift kept, kept white hot by me intentionally feeding that flame over and over. So when you speak boldly for Jesus, was it you that empowered that or was it God? When you suffer for the gospel, was it your innate ability to endure, you're just tough? Or did Christ infuse you with a divine anointing to be able to suffer? Now, Paul is setting a tone here that we'll see throughout the future sermons. Paul's setting a tone of suffering throughout the rest of this book. Share in suffering. This is all in 2 Timothy. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. This is all out of 2 Timothy 2. Do your best to present yourself a worker who has, who has no need to be ashamed. And the Lord's servant must, 
patiently endure evil. And in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. You have followed my persecutions and sufferings. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As for you, endure suffering. There's only four chapters. And all of this comes from this this little letter. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He knows he's going to die. I have fought the good fight. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Everybody deserted me. Over and over and over again. Does that come from me, or does that come from God, from a gift? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you cannot even say Jesus is Lord, Messiah, except through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't even confess that. That ought to strip us away of any sort of arrogance and pride when it comes to our salvation. And to know that if I am saved, it is saved by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Someone once said, and it's stuck with me, if I get to heaven and I stand before Jesus and he says, why are you here? It's certainly my response is not going to start with, why? No. Well, I decided, well, I should know. I'm going to fall at my knees and say, I'm here because of you and the work that you did on the cross and the grace and mercy that you showed me. I was dead in trespasses and sin, Paul said, and I was quickened, made alive through the Holy Spirit. Dead people can't even do anything. That's the, the, the image that Paul's making is you're dead. Like you are out and the Holy Spirit comes and performs a miracle in your life. If you have any inkling and knowledge and just desire for God. You ought to thank God for that. You didn't decide to do that. That's a miraculous work of the Spirit. <coughs> Jesus would echo this sentiment and say, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's would save it. Jesus says the way to save your life is to lose your life for his sake. It's the paradoxical principles of the kingdom. That is the Calvary road. That is the road that American Christianity knows very, very little about. But that is the Calvary road. And the paradox that Paul knew and that we must all know and discover is that the joy to be found in Christ is found in that Calvary road. That some of the happiest, I mean truly happiest people you'll ever meet are people who have suffered for the sake of the gospel. Wouldn't make sense. It's a principle, it's an idea that goes outside the kingdom. You'll see people who appear to be very happy and humble who have suffered for ideas and values that are good. They may not be specific to the kingdom, 
but they're good. They, they've suffered in the face of adversity, and there comes a joy from that. How much more in life will that joy come to those who suffer for the greatest cause of all, and that's the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where true joy is found. Let's pray. Gracious God, this morning you have shined down upon us once again with words I did not scratch the surface of what's really here in the text of what Paul is trying to convey to Timothy, telling him to guard that which had been deposited. All of these things, Lord. But We've looked at Paul's admonition to Timothy, his command to rekindle the fire. A young pastor in a heathen city like Ephesus, Timothy and the people there, no doubt a a drastic minority of believers fighting for the faith in the midst of a culture that uh, has no room in their concepts for the one true and living God. They were an idolatrous culture in their own way. We live in our own idolatrous culture. It's very different, but yet it is idolatry. It worships, truly worships things that are not of you. And so, Lord, as we, as we seek out to live out our faith, that we can look to the encouragement of Paul to Timothy, we can look to uh, the believers who have gone on before us as encouragement to know they made it and we can make it as well. Our ultimate goal in life, the only thing in life that truly matters, is to someday stand before you at that great day and to hear you say the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And until that time, Lord... Keep us from the evil one. Keep us, Lord, from all the things that would come against us, the fiery darts, that we hold up a shield of faith, that we may endure and stand until the end. And the Lord, that we would, as Paul encouraged Timothy, to not be ashamed, but to boldly embrace the gospel and, when necessary, to suffer for it. Now go with us this week, this day, Reveal to us in our hearts and minds people that we could talk to about the gospel and about the reality of Jesus in this world. And Lord, help us and edify your people, strengthen us until we come again. We ask this in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And God bless you this morning.